This episode is brought to you by FastCase and its comprehensive suite of legal intelligence tools. FastCase offers the full suite from legal research to analytics, document tracking to secondary treatises, AI tools, legal news, and more. FastCase is the smarter way to run your law library. And now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to another edition of On the Road with Legal Talk Network. This is Phil Rosenthal and I'm the host for today's show which is being recorded on location at the American Association of Law Libraries annual meeting and conference from Washington, D.C. Joining me now, I have Dean Sonderegger who is the Senior Vice President and General Manager for Walters Kluwer Legal and Regulatory. Steve Lastris, the Director of Knowledge Management Services at Debevoys and Plimpton. Catherine Monty, the Chief Knowledge and Innovation Officer for Fox Rothschild, and Gabe Tenenbaum, the Professor of Legal Writing and Director of the Institute on Law Practice, Technology, and Innovation for Suffolk University Law School. Before we get to our topic, Building the Case for Legal Innovation, please tell us a little more about yourself. Where do you work and what do you do? Hi, this is Dean Sonderegger at Walters Kluwer. Uh, so I work at Walters Kluwer. Uh, I have been uh, here for about four and a half years and I'm really responsible for product strategy and driving a business and how does the content business change if you go, will going into uh, today's world with legal technology, AI, things like that. Little known fact about myself, I have a misspent youth as a software developer, so I actually at one point in time wrote software, no longer employable in that aspect and now kind of focus on product stuff. Uh, my name is Gabe Tenenbaum. I'm a professor at Suffolk University Law School in Boston, where I run the Institute on Legal Innovation and Technology. And the challenge that we face is how to make sure that law students are ready to succeed today, a decade from now, and, and beyond. And I'm Catherine Monty at Fox Rothschild. Uh, I've been there for 18 years, and we really started out doing mostly research-related functions, but we quickly morphed into the knowledge management area, competitive intelligence area, and finally innovation within the last six months. And I'm Steve Lasters, Director of Knowledge Management Services at Deborah Voice and Plimpton in New York. I've been at the firm for 14 years, and I manage the Knowledge Management Group, which is comprised of uh, knowledge management, research services, and electronic resources. And our goal really is to help lawyers innovate the practice of law. Well, thank you all for joining us. Now, Dean, this podcast is a preview of a major panel that you'll be moderating later today on the same topic. So could you give us a quick overview of the topic and the uh, key issues involved? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Phil. Uh, we are looking at, uh, when we talk to clients, uh, both in the academic and the professional markets, we see an ongoing challenge for clients to, to get their firm or their organization to invest in innovation the way we think they should. And so what we've done is we've brought a panel of experts in this area together to talk about best practices with that. What is the burning platform that's driving us towards innovation? And what's the best practice to going through that? And how does one measure success when approaching innovation? Well, thank you. Uh, well, Catherine, uh, could you, let's jump right into it. How do you build the case for innovation? I think one of the most important things to remember with any major project is um, 
factors, I call them the three C's, and it's really knowing your company, your firm, your organization. So the organizational culture, you know, the priorities, um, the influencers within that um, particular organization, which are key to help you drive a lot of the projects forward. Um, your client base, your internal clients, your external clients, are there key clients? Um, are there certain, you know, um, industries, for example, that you need to focus on? Uh, and finally, your competitors, which take on a lot of different forms. They could be other firms, they could be corporate legal departments, um, or any disruptor in the legal industry. So those factors you really need to consider before you sort of dive into what's going to be most important for your particular organization. It sounds like there are a lot of uh, stakeholders that you have to get on board from that, from that list there. And, uh, and Steve, you were mentioning that security and, and the security folks at the firm are particularly sometimes a challenge. Yeah, it is a challenge because, you know, we, we have such a penchant now for being concerned about breaches in our own environments that when we bring in software and other products from outside the firm to integrate with, with our own data, uh, there's extreme sensitivity uh, to making sure that these new tools and some of them from startup companies that really haven't gone through the ISO and other certification processes that are essential uh, to be able to tap into our network. So knowledge uh, professionals and information professionals really have been uh, traditionally engaged in uh, evaluating the content set of the particular product. And in reality, what they really need to do today is to be engaged in understanding the um, technology protocols uh, that that um, company will support and helping to understand uh, that it meets the, the, uh, the triggers that the firm uh, has in terms of the level of security. And especially those of us who, are, who have financial services clients, uh, you know, they are extremely sensitive and most of our organizations are very locked down in our networks. So we really need to understand uh, that they have the ability to uh, protect our data uh, and protect the privacy of our clients. Sure. And uh, so from the law firm perspective to both of you, how do you identify all the stakeholders and get them on board? Well, I think um, following up with what Steve said, um, when I had to do a presentation to our executive committee to build the case for this, um, it took about six months um, from the time I first introduced this to the firm-wide managing partner, our COO, and the time that I had that presentation. And I knew our... Um, privacy and security officer would be at that meeting. And he asked some good questions. And um, I think, again, to what Steve said, you need to be prepared. You need to speak that language and understand right. what kinds of questions are going to come up and be able to address them. Um, look at other peer firms and say, hey, they did it this way. How can we also do it that way? So I think that that's really important. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what about the, uh, the law school perspective? Uh, not all Law schools are, are known for, for innovation, but Suffolk certainly is one of them. And, and to be able to create such an amazing uh, institute as you have, you know, going about getting that done, and how does innovation get uh, brought through the process uh, at a law school? Well, first, thank you. And, and we've worked hard to build what we have. And you know, it, it starts off by having a vision, and we're very lucky because we have folks like Dean Andy Perlman, who was the founding director of the ABA Center on Innovation, and other members of the team who really have given us great insights into how to do this. So the way we do it is by doing it, which is to say, on day one, our law students start doing hands-on legal tech projects. During orientation, we'll have 300 students build an AI uh, bot that, that can solve a real-life legal problem, and we'll do it over 45 minutes or an hour. And the idea here is to teach people that taking these little steps is easy, 
uh, is valuable and is important. And over the course of their education, we give them more opportunities to see what the possibilities are, and we give them the ability to do real hands-on tactile stuff so that they can practice it. Great, well, thank you. Um, so Phil, I just wanted to jump in please. here a second because in the law firm world, you know, uh, we also have to do uh, in order to show the, the value of innovation. And one of the things we did at Deborah Voice last December was we had a data analytics uh, resources fair where we opened up three conference rooms and had kiosks just like you would here at the vendor fair uh, sure. of AAL. And we had uh, a kiosk where we had our researchers and our KM staff present a five minute kind of overview of the various AI data analytics tools that we have already in place that most of our lawyers had no idea that we had. And we were able to have handouts and actually show them graphics of the types of data that they could get from these products. So it was really valuable because after that fair, and we had about 200 lawyers uh, attend, is that we were, you know, we started getting questions uh, into our knowledge uh, desk about, you know, what's that, you know, tool that you talked to talk to us about that can give me analytics on litigation or sure, on dockets. Sure. And so that's, you know, there's so many tools out there, like Catherine mentioned before, that it's almost impossible for our lawyers to know what to ask for. But if they know the question that the tool answers, then they know, you know, then we can guide them as to what's the appropriate tool. Well, Steve, I'm glad you raised that because you can have the most wonderful innovation and tools in the world, but if there's no adoption, <laughs> then it's, it's not going to do much for yeah. anybody. So what, what was the impact of, of doing that fair? Did you find a huge pickup? Uh, Absolutely. In, in so in these tools, you know, what we started to do also is we created an AI um, intranet page to help our lawyers in the litigation, the corporate department, and the tax department understand which were the tools that were relevant to their practice. Um, mm -hmm. So, And then ask the question that the tool answered, and then give them an actual attachment of a sample report that showed them the actual work product that they could get back from that tool. So now, they didn't need to necessarily know the name of the tool, but they knew what were the types of data or questions that could be asked and answered from each of these individual tools. And then we went and did presentations at the practice group level for specific tools, because lawyers don't want to know it all. They want to know the one or two things that are relevant to them. Right. Right. And to add to that, you know, we do similar things. Um, we didn't have a, a little kiosk yet, but um, the practice group meetings are key because they want to hear the success stories. So to me, the ROI is about if I can point to one of your peer partners in the IP group who is doing X, Y, and Z with one of the tools that we already have, and you didn't know about it, but now you know about it and how you can apply it to your clients, to me that's the best ROI I can have. If I have five more people calling me or 10 more people, 20 more people after that meeting to say, I had no idea we had this. Yes, we've done this, this is probably our fifth time telling you, but yes, I'm glad you get it now. To me, that's the ROI. Oh, that's wonderful. And Dean, I wonder if you could give the perspective from the uh, publishing side, because certainly making sure there's adoption is a big issue there as well, both uh, for internal initiatives and I'm sure for the uh, wonderful products. Yeah, I think that the, it's an interesting challenge in the sense that as, as solutions and tools evolve, it's a, and I think the, the folks in the uh, panel would agree, it's a very rich tapestry of tools at this point in time that are out there. And so I think that the key is understanding your clients very, very well and, and partnering with them 
so that you A, fit into their process for discovery and understanding, and, and Steve referenced the security part, making sure that you're meeting the needs from them there, and then you're making sure that you're solving a real use case for them with that, and, and that's when you get those the, the attorneys saying, hey, I want this, or the answer is relevant to me, when you're solving that very real use case. So I think that's one of the things that, uh, um, and I talk with Legal Talk startups a lot, I said, if you can describe how it is that you're helping somebody at the end of the day on something they're currently doing, then you have something that is going to be, they're very receptive to. I think when you think about next horizon of things, and when we, we hold hackathons, for instance, you start talking about next horizon of those things. Those are interesting, but it's, it's good to know that, that the folks that are on this panel and their peers are seeing a lot of those kind of next horizon things, and there's only so many that they can spend the time to get into, to look at, so. And on the uh, law school perspective, I guess adoption may means what what happens after the student graduates. Do you have a sense of the of the impact uh, there? Right. So I think actually the the problem we face in our different jobs is, is quite similar. The, the challenge is that you have all these cool tools, but people don't necessarily have the schema to understand why they might be valuable to them. So it's sort of like being able to see tree, 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 but not being able to see the forest. So we have one perspective, which is early on in legal education, we want to give that people the scope of, here's how cool tools can make you better at your job and be able to offer services at a lower cost, or help solve the access to justice gap, or, or help attack the, the $40 billion a year latent legal market. Here's how these tools can work, and here are some of the representative tools that are out there. And then what happens is as more and more tools get adopted, as more and more people um, are welcoming to this sort of approach, then I think you'll get more widespread adoption. So again, I think the four of us all face this challenge from a different perspective, but ultimately I think the, the challenge is the same. You know, there's that story, probably apocryphal, about Henry Ford, and they said, well, uh, he said, um, if I had asked consumers uh, what I should build, they would say a faster horse, right? right. We, we want to change the conversation and show people this is a car and this is what it can do. So that's what we do at Suffolk Law and I think that's perhaps what the others do in, in their space too. I'm, I'm really curious when I hear that conversation um, from, from uh, Catherine and Steve, when you see new associates coming in, do they have a different affinity for technology and the practice of law as opposed to like older partners? And, and how do you handle that in the firm? I would say absolutely. Uh, they, they're more technologically adept. Uh, they want to do things on their own. As we know, you know even if we look back at you know, the, the role of secretaries, uh, you know, lawyers type their own documents. We've got a document production department that actually does, you know, the, the, the brief filings and the, the, the typing of the filings 24-7. Uh, so we've had to figure out what we do with secretaries, right, and, and how to use them efficiently. Same thing has happened with technology now. So we have lawyers who want to be able to go on and use these, these tools to be more efficient. Uh, they, they don't value as much, even though our firm is, we're a very collaborative uh, firm, but our young lawyers want to go on to certain tools and be able to understand, you know, what's the timeline look like for an M&A uh, deal without having to ask a partner. They want to feel, you know, that they're better prepared, more intelligent when they have that conversation. So they're more likely to want to use these tools. And so what we've done to embrace that is to actually have a knowledge management services academy that actually is a half day, the first week they get into the firm, and we start teaching them these tools. Now they may not remember every tool that we discuss, but they will remember that we have a tool that does this if you're a litigator, or a tool that does this if you're a corporate lawyer, and then we follow up that initial 
KM Academy with additional trainings um, for the specific tools, and we typically will break it down to a practice area where we'll show them three or four tools that are the most relevant for their practice. And then as they become you know, uh, second and third year associates and they develop uh, you know, their talents, then we go on and show them additional tools. Mm -hmm. And Catherine, yeah, and similar. I would add to that, we do similar um, things at our firm. We also really utilize them uh, in our task force for testing a lot of the new tools. So they are very keen to get involved to do that. And um, we love it because they have the interest and the drive and they will, they will really test out the tools very well, uh, with or without a script. So that's what we really love, the fact that they have that um, energy and enthusiasm yeah. about it. Well, and they're great at finding the bugs. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That is true. Um, you know, I'm intrigued. We're talking a lot about tools that are, are provided, new technology, and certainly critical part of innovation is using all the new tools that are out there. But what about going beyond that, other kinds of innovation, having a more general innovation strategy, process innovation, building tools? How do folks handle generalizing the innovation uh, challenge? So I'll, I'll start with this. I mean, we have a very broad umbrella of innovation at Fox, and it does include tools, but um, it's one of the first conversations I had. I said, it's not just about tools at all. It's about programs. It could be a program for the summer associates or fall associates. It could be improving a process to make things more efficient for attorneys, whether it's on a dashboard for a budget or um, competitive intelligence and putting data analytics together for that. It could be a client solution. It could be a 50-state survey that we're trying to serve up in a different way for a particular client. So all of those are not really new tools. They're just new ways of looking at information right. and providing that solution that solves a particular business need. Do you see, like, I think one of the things that uh, that I see driving a lot of that is the, the change in client expectations, too. So I think that when you look at the relationship between um, in-house counsel and outside counsel, you start to see, I think, a few themes, one of which is a desire for greater transparency, a desire for partnership in a place where, um, you know, I know for our own uh, in-house counsel, we've dropped down to about eight outside firms and we no longer send things out in RFP in the same way that we might have done at one point in time. How, what type of factor is that, at least at Fox, in terms of uh, driving some of the need for innovation? I mean. It's funny, uh, marketing has certainly seen more direct questions around this and on RFPs. So when we're doing pitches, they're often contacting us and saying, okay, there's some general questions about, sometimes there's general questions about knowledge management, but now there's more about, specifically about innovation or solutions. And um, I think that that says a lot about those client expectations. Um, and we're, we're still trying to figure out the best way to do it. We obviously answer those questions, but it's hard to me, it's hard to do a generic response to those. They're very customized. It depends on who that client is, what industry that client is in, and how we're gonna go about maybe promoting the kinds of services that we can provide on top of the legal. You know, the legal is, is a bench that everyone has, so what else can you do on top of that? And that's, our, that's sort of a challenge we have right now. Sure, and, and Gabe, I saw you wanted to jump in. One of the things that we've worked hard on is not just focusing on tech tools and doing things that don't involve computers or smartphones or, or any other modern technology and process improvement and legal project management has been a space that's been useful because not only does it allow people to understand how complex things happen, but it opens the door to the new technology. So we have courses where students will do process improvement. They'll do process mapping. 
and we'll ask them to go to their internship or go to, to, to an organization that they're familiar with and ask to work on one simple process, the mail room, the copy room, the reception desk, not threatening stuff to billable hours. And what they'll find is, is that as they blow apart the process, they find all these opportunities for efficiency and then the technology sort of pop into place. Mm, right. So there's mm -hmm. that axiom, um, people then process then tools. We spend a pretty fair amount of time on the people and process piece before we get to the tools and I think that's been valuable. And I, I just want to say one other thing in response to a, a word that Catherine said that cued something in my mind. She said the M word, marketing. So as firms and organizations think about legal technology, one of the things I think about is that from our perspective here, at least my perspective, the best opportunity is the deep dive where you have real experts who are really involved in this stuff and understand it and want to improve the bottom line in a measurable way. There's also another approach and that's the marketing approach. At the end of the day, when you have 15 law firms on the same street, like K Street right outside of where we are, and they all look effectively the same, and the associates all went to Ivy League schools, and they were all on law review, and they all did a federal clerkship, at the end of the day, there has to be some distinguishing factor. And I think um, process improvement, legal project management, and technology are real opportunities there, and they allow places to have a foot in the door. So for those people that say, like, I don't know if I want to invest in this, the reality is you objectively should invest in this because there are ways to make your firm better, but just from a simple marketing perspective, to be able to say, we're a firm that does X. We hire an associate, one associate in our class every year who specializes in legal technology. It'll cost you a few thousand dollars, but it gives you an advantage that no one else would have. So um, the marketing point is one that I think always is, it's sort of like a, a cynical thing that overarches it. It's not just substance, it's about how you sell your services and being able to do something different matters. And just on that point, you know, marketing in even a broader context is that our partners have become marketers of our of our organizations, and so they have to have their fingers on the pulse of what our clients are doing, understanding their business and their industries, and as a result, we just, at our firm, we deployed a new uh, content aggregation tool that has AI underlying it, so that the lawyers can get real-time alerts about, you know, our clients, their industries, what's happening with them, uh, you know, their contacts, and so, you know, before a lawyer, if they got once a day, you know, push of, of news, that was enough. Today, they need to know things as they happen. And so the ability to be able to carry on business development as well as the practice of law really has pushed us forward with partnering with marketing and business development and our strategists to help them get that underlying data that they can then analyze. Yeah, when we did, we had done a, a, a study, a global study called Future Ready Lawyer, and one of the questions we asked inside counsel about their choice and preference for outside counsel, they had the primary three factors were price, which shocks nobody, specialization, and then um, ability to partner with the client. And, and so when you think about those three things, and, and none of those are shocking, none of those are probably really changed over the last couple decades. And I think to, to Gabe's point, it starts to see how do you leverage resources that you didn't have to deliver those three things in a differentiated fashion. And I think that's what you're talking about, Steve, is your ability to say, hey, I understand your industry very, very well, and I'm going to let you know information that you're not getting someplace else. Mm -hmm. So, But it's not technology for technology's no. sake. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wonder if we could look at a 
specific example, and maybe and maybe Dean, because you have such massive innovation projects of, <laughs> of, of the whole life cycle of uh, defining the new initiative, scoping it out, presenting it, securing funding, developing the case internally, all the, the challenges, and, and then you know, bringing it out to the customer, making sure it's adopted. I wonder if, if you have a favorite example. I don't know if it's your cybersecurity, privacy project, well, whatever. Well, no, I think that the, the, the general tenants of, of anything that we look at from an innovation standpoint are consistent. Is that you work in small batches and you work very closely with your customers uh, at the end of the day. And so for us when we do these things, it starts off with basically a hypothesis. We think that lawyers are struggling with X um, or researchers struggling with, with X and then if we did Y, that would be a good thing for them. And it can be incremental things and it can be uh, big life-changing things. I, one of my favorite examples is uh, something that we did um, is uh, we were looking at uh, uh, securities filings. You know, securities is a big area for us. We're looking at securities filings and um, we went in and did a little contextual inquiry on the workflow and saw that one of the, first of all, we saw that every securities filing is done from a prior filing. No, nobody's writing the filing from scratch, right? Um, shocking, right? And the second thing that we noticed is that the rules change between the filing. So if it's an annual report, my rules have changed since then, and we saw lawyers going through, or associates or researchers going through, and looking at rules and regulations that have changed and creating a checklist manually that they went through, and it saw it being a very tedious process. And we said to ourselves, hmm, our hypothesis was, gosh, we have the, all the content and the changes that occur, why don't we, when we update the content, just simply create that checklist dynamically? And, it, and it's not a world-changing kind of automatic robot lawyer kind of thing. It was, it's a simple process improvement, and, but the way you do that is you then talk to lawyers and say, hey, if I could give you the checklist automatically instead of you creating it yourself, what would that do? And, and you, so you, you validate, and then you prototype, and then you put it into um, um, production, and you do it in small batches. And I think that's the process that we do, and so when we do it internally, we go and we say, hey, we have an idea, it's going to cost a little bit of money to validate the idea. Oh, we're going to just cost a little bit of money to build the prototype. We don't do what we would, uh, in the software world, refer to as the big bang, which is I'm going to spend a year and a million dollars to build something, <laughs> and at the end of that year, you're going to get your first opportunity to validate it. And I suspect that in every environment when you're trying to do things, that incremental kind of approach where you get that validation, um, whether it be a large idea or just an incremental idea, is, is a key component of that. Our program at Suffolk Law is built on that premise. I mean, we, we follow sort of a product design template. So when we, for example, saw an opportunity to do R&D, we hired someone part-time for a year to run an R&D lab, and that's David Colarusso, who's a wonderful data scientist and attorney. We ended up getting a, 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 a big grant from the Pew Foundation to do more and more and more, and we'll continue to scale opportunities. We had a similar one with our educational programs. You know, the, the most asked question I get when I talk about what we're doing at Suffolk Law from lawyers is, how can I do that? And the answer has always been, well, you can do Coursera, uh, or you can, you know, ask your, uh, you know, old law school if you can come sit in on a legal tech course. And what we did was we, we created a best of and created an online program for legal professionals. These are all built using that sort of product development template. So the, the ideation, the prototype, the, the validation, et cetera. And, and it's been um, educational. 
Yeah, uh. I mean, I, I would I would recommend for people that want to read. Obviously, uh, Eric Reese, the Lean Startup, is a great read. It speaks to more business to consumer kind of world. So you kind of have to, in a professional environment, adapt that a little bit. Uh, in you know, I don't have lar law of large numbers where I'm sending a prototype across 500,000 people and getting a statistically significant result. But the idea of I create a hypothesis, I validate it, I build something, I measure the results, and I learn from that, and I iterate into the next stage. I think is a very powerful idea in almost any environment. Well, I would think the challenge for law firms is that, you know, as you mentioned, Dean, we've got that rich tapestry of vendors out there wanting to push products our way. And so what we're really doing is focusing on evaluating those. And I can tell you that last year, we evaluated over 40 different products and brought in about two. Right. So, so the hard part for us is, is being able you know, to, to evaluate those um, and understanding what the disruption would be for our lawyers because, you know, lawyers are billing X dollars an hour trying to, you know, manage the client, service the client. Uh, they're doing uh, pro bono work. Uh, they're doing uh, business development work. And so really when, you know, it's really incumbent on the knowledge management services group to really understand what is a tool that can change the way they work to make them more efficient, provide better client service. And so one of our challenges is really to find that, you know, that needle in the haystack that's really going to make a change for the better for our lawyers. And so a lot of what we have to do is really be critical about the tools we're evaluating and only bring forward those that we really think will add value uh, and then build the business case and get the funding for it from our technology steering committee. Well, I think so there's a certain, similar. certain portion of that, right, which is um, behavior by vendors too, just to speak, just to call it out, right, is to say that I think that it's very important for those of us who are building solutions to be transparent about where we're at. So if we're in a proving value stage, that might be an appetizing, might be appealing to certain firms because they're they're on the forefront of that, and it may completely not be appealing to some firms because you don't want to have your attorneys distracted by that. Where you get into troubles, I think, is as a vendor where you're porting something is baked, right, and it's in the the mixing stage, if you will, to take a <laughs> cooking analogy. I can mix metaphors all day, but um, and I think that that's one of the things yeah. that that we in the community need to be very upfront about is that. Where we do well is when we partner with our customers, and where and that partnering involves transparency, disclosure, all those kinds of things. And when we don't do that, I don't think we as a, a community shine. So, and and you know, I'm intrigued when you talk about comparing different uh, projects, different products. Everyone talks about return on investment, and you know, to, if if we could boil that down to the number that it sounds like, it would be easy to do the comparison. But as as I've heard the conversation, it's it's it, it sounds like it's very hard to define sometimes return on investment and how you do it. And and, and maybe Catherine, as an, some examples of how you make those comparisons, what are the ways you define return on investment and how you would. And there are some projects that definitely lend themselves to more, I'll, I'll say, straightforward, um, even concrete, you know, billable, billables or, or financial results. So, you know, we have, you know, we got X number of new matters, which, you know, equate to X amount of new dollars this year because we helped these, you know, this practice group or these 10 attorneys do X, Y, and Z. And we do, we do do that. We, we measure that. Um, and we put that together in, in an annual report that I do um, for the firm I'm managing partner. But I, I honestly think the best return on investment are attorneys talking about what, how we helped them. Mm -hmm. And that can be in many different ways. But 
The best example of the return on investment was when we were actually invited, the knowledge management group, to a client to do a presentation on a solution that we built for them. It was the day before the partner retreat. It went, we could have gone either way. It went really well. <laughs> and the firm line managing partner said at the partner retreat how amazed he was that how successful this project was. Hmm. That was the best return nice. on investment I could ever ask for. And I didn't even ask for it. I didn't plan it. So part of it is, I think, attorneys talking about how we've helped them. Mm -hmm. And again, that to me, that speaks a lot more. I mean, I can go to every practice group meeting, and I do. We do go to a lot of practice group meetings. We put things in our newsletter. We have a great portal page as well. And everyone consumes things differently. But that, if the firm I managing partner or, or another partner is saying how great, how successful this was, that to me is the best well, that's a great example how it's it's not just about numbers. It's intangibles, there's satisfaction. And maybe perhaps we should make this our, our last question going around the horn if, uh, if there are other thoughts about return on investment and, and how that's defined. Yeah, so I, I would boil that down to impact. And, you know, again, the same thing with, with Catherine in terms of the numbers and providing where it's straightforward, but a lot of times it's the impact. So we, we on, on occasion, will be asked by a client to help them set up a knowledge management program uh, at the client site. And so that's the best, you know, kind of response you can get from a partner coming to you and saying, can you help our client who wants to build knowledge management? And they want to understand how to do this and how to put it into place and where you've helped them to do that. And then they come back to you a year or two later and say, wow, we didn't realize how hard this was going to be, but we got there and, and really thanking you and thanking the partners. And, and that goes a long way in terms of, you know, your reputation and, and proving the value of what you do every day. Great. Gabe or... Or Dean, any other comments on that? Well, for us, it's rather straightforward. At the law school, we think about graduation rates, we think about bar pass rate, mm -hmm. we think about employment, we think about satisfaction. We want people not just to hit those milestones and check the boxes, but we want them to be happy with what they're doing, feel like they're giving back to make a difference for their clients and their community. And we've been quite successful so far with that, and, and we'll continue to try to make it better. I take a slightly more hard numerical uh, uh, analysis on this. I think that, and, and I, from a business standpoint, I, I encourage people sometimes to look at this this way, is that if you look at lawyer productivity over the last decade, it's dropped by an average of 13 hours per lawyer per month. Mm -hmm. If you expand that out by an average rate, um, which is fairly modest, that's about $75,000 per lawyer per year. Um, so. The question is, how do I get more billable hours? Um, I, I encourage people to look at uh, situations where they're getting write-downs done, where they're not receiving. In some cases, you see 70% uh, of a, a carry-in rate on certain billable hours. Those are places to take a look at for an ROI, because I think when you start to manage up into the partnership, um, that's money out of their pockets. And so I think uh, that's a good place to start uh, from an innovation standpoint. That's not necessarily measuring ROI, but that's a place where you can identify potential ROI and then if you can measure you know, uh, billable hours and receivables, it's in a language that's very familiar for the law firm. Thank you. Well, it looks like we've reached the end of the road for our episode. I want to thank our guests for joining us today. And if our listeners have questions or wish to follow up with you, how can they reach you? They can reach me at salastris at debavoice.com. And cmonty at foxrothschild.com. gtenenbaum at suffolk.edu. And I'm dean.sondereger at walterskluer.com, which is a whole lot of syllables. So if you just Google Dean and Walters Kluer, <laughs> you know, you'll find the proper spelling for all of those things. There you go, AI. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Phil at fastcase.com. Well, thank you to our listeners for tuning in. 
If you like what you heard, please rate and review us in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app. I'm Phil Rosenthal. Until next time, thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Uh